Until now, little has been known about how Borrelia bacteria interacts with cells. In this episode, we are going back to Finland to understand what happens at a cellular level and understand what enables Borrelia to survive. Dr. Leona Gilbert is a docent of cell and molecular biology and the CEO of Tested. Dr. Gilbert has over 20 years experience in research-driven initiatives that provide valuable tools for patients. She has a doctorate in biotechnology and extensive experience in bioinnovation and biobusiness. Welcome back to our podcast, Leona. Great. Hi. Thank you for having me here. Let's start with understanding the immune system. I know you're looking at cells and various forms of Borrelia. How does the immune system respond when Borrelia enters the body? For example, what does a macrophage do when it encounters Borrelia? Well, like the macrophage, when it encounters any other pathogen, it will um, it will pick it up and recognize it by these patterns of recognition on the surface of Borrelia. It, and when I say recognize it, it really attaches itself to the Borrelia and want to phagocyte it or want to ingest it, okay, and handle it and resolve it, and thereby actually actually presenting little proteins or peptides on the surface of the macrophage so that it can communicate to other cells. And degenerate cells do the same thing. They phagocyte these Borrelia because somehow the communication in the immune system to tell the immune cells that they should, you know, be wary that there is a pathogen there, they have to communicate. And, and the communication starts obviously by processing, processing and resolving that, that uh pathogen that they have ingested and displaying parts of it on the outside surface so that it can communicate to other cells. So it's not an exceptional pathway. It's like the normal pathway. But Borrelia is so big. It's it's around 20 microns in length, but it's very thin, like hair, like it's 20 nanometers widthwise. And it is a corkscrew-like structure. So it it is really a large pathogen comparatively to other bacteria like E. coli or even viruses that could be just just a couple nanometers, you know, in diameter or 10 nanometers in diameter. So it's a very large pathogen. So the macrophage really has to have unique kind of uh, mechanisms of, of actually ingesting it and processing it because it it's it's what's its job to do is really to process pathogens. So so there have been been other groups that indicate that the Borrelia actually in dendritic cells actually drills into the cell. Okay. And other people in us have shown that actually the philopods, so the arms of the macrophages actually surrounds the Borrelia and forces it to kind of curl up and then it ingests it into the cell. So there's different mechanisms that these immune cells can can actually use to ingest it and then to process it. Oh, that's really a great explanation. Thank you. And we are going to link to some of the images and the research, obviously, that uh, to your website so that people that have that uh, aptitude and want to go and see these images can can see them for themselves. Now, what is pleomorphism? And again, I know you're looking at these images under a microscope, so I'm really asking you to kind of describe what you're seeing as well. Sure. So I, I just described that Borrelia is like a corkscrew-like structure. So it, it's kind of coiling and it's really 20 
micrometers in length and two 200 nanometers width. So it's very thin, okay? And pleomorphic uh, means that it can change its shape based on its environment. So we and others have demonstrated that when Borrelia is faced with an adverse environment, could be a change of pH, change in nutrients, change in media, could be even be the presence of human Sarah, okay? It, it recognizes the environment is stressful for them. So they tend to protrude its membrane, outer membrane, and make these little blebs. Okay, and the blebs actually ball out, okay, and expand and expand and make these round bodies. Okay, these round bodies really are circular, they're about two microns in diameter. Okay, and inside you can really see the protoplastic cylinder where the genetic material of the Borrelia is, it's really coiled inside this round body. Other people have said that this is a cell wall deficient. Um, form or pleomorphic form, but we have demonstrated that actually the round body maintains its integrity of its cell wall. So it's really not a cell wall deficient. It is really a, a, a truly a two plasma membrane um, uh, structure and it holds its integrity. Besides the bleb, as I mentioned to you, the first signs of adverse conditions or environment, it turns into a round body, but we also have noticed in vitro as well as in vivo studies of ours and others that Borrelia can form biofilm structures. And in an in vitro system, we call them biofilm-like structures because in a normal culture um, medium or like growing these bacteria up over a course of seven days, they like to clump together. They like to, you know, bring all their community individuals together and form a biofilm. Now, it's been speculated that the biofilms is a really resistant form uh, of, of uh, to protect the bacteria against right. any, you know, against even uh, antibiotics and, and so forth. But in that biofilm, it's also, uh, you know, having different pleomorphic forms. So you will see the spiricate form, the parent form. You will see the round body form, okay? You will see um, these spiricates with these blebs, okay? You will see all of that in the bio, biofilm-like structures. And we do really do see this in, in human studies as well, and in animal studies, and in, in culture. Now, you mentioned the biofilms. What are some of the mechanisms of Borrelia fitness that do enable it to that do enable them to survive? Well, I think the the mechanism is that that the kind of sense it's called quorum sensing. So so they sense that there is an adverse uh, environment and they want to clump together to actually provide in a normal let's say in a, in a normal host, like the human host, they will actually recruit other kinds of proteins there like to create this extracellular matrix so that the biofilm can attach itself there and, and start building up really a solid structure. And we have seen these in studies of the, of the joints in people and also in, in, in the brains of, of individuals of autopsy samples. So it's really creating an, a really niche for this Borrelia. And, and 
through quorum sensing, the whole point is, is that they can share genetic material amongst each other, okay, to, to actually allow this kind of uh, persistent form and also survival within the structure. And incidentally, there are um, other studies that actually speculate that it could also be that that these biofilms are a good platform for other microbes, okay, beneficial or not, to actually participate in building up this architecture of the biofilm. So it's it could be a kind of a synergetic effect that allows kind of its survival with other microbes, but on its own, we know definitely that there is recruitment of extracellular matrix proteins that allows it to establish itself as a biofilm in hosts. <laughs> That's extraordinary. Now, yeah. I know you're using a transmission electromicroscope to produce graphs. I'm just wondering if you can tell us a little more about that and what is immune labeling, immunolabeling? Yeah, so so in order to see these things in high resolution, we need to use transmission electron uh, microscopy. So basically we're sending electrons through samples, like cell samples, okay? And so that we can see the interior or the surface of cells. And, and it's interesting because we can see actually the architecture of cells are things inside the cells as well. And if we do immunolabeling, which means if we use an antibody that's very specific against Borrelia or therefore its structures like DNA or the outer surface protein a, uh, C and A or other, other uh, structures like P41 of the flagella, if we use antibodies against those structures of the Borrelia, we can very specifically label those parts and we can see them in in uh, these electron microscopes. And that's what immunolabeling is. And not only for transmission in electron microscope, but we can also immunolabel, you know, uh, cells, Borrelia cells or normal cells or macrophages that have ingested Borrelia. We can immunolabel them with antibodies and see the Borrelia inside inside the macrophage or outside the macrophage or or any other cell type that we want to investigate. So it's really immuno means an antibody directed against the very structures of the Borrelia that we want to see. Because seeing just microscope samples is very subjective. It doesn't say that that you're not identifying that that's a Borrelia. You have to use some other technique, either label label its proteins or label even its DNA with probes to see that that's the Borrelia definitely inside a certain cell type. So that's why we use these immunolabel techniques. I found it interesting that you're examining survival of Borrelian cells. What what did you find? Yeah, it's really crazy. So <laughs> when we first wanted to understand what happens with Borrelia in our immune system, we first investigated macrophages. And, and we wanted to see the route in which macrophages can resolve Borrelia. And that was us and others have published that really macrophages are good, um, good phagocytes, which means that they ingest the pathogen and can process through this endocytotic pathway that involves lysosomes that have really a acidic pH, okay? But when we were thinking about how does Borrelia actually establish itself in the host, in the human, we decided to use two cell lines, so the, the skin fibroblast cell line and also the chondrocytes, so so chondrocytes meaning joint, joint cells, okay? Because we know that Borrelia obviously infects the skin and needs to 
needs to, you know, uh, go to the, well, it can go to the lymphatic system and also can go through our blood system and disseminate to other organs. We know this, but we also know that Borrelia can hide out in niches like, like uh, the knees, so synovial sites. And that's what prompt us to investigate. So are these cells, can these cells resolve the Borrelia or can, can uh, Borrelia survive within the cells? And what we have done is we have have infected uh, both the skin cell, okay, so the epithelial fibrovose cells, and we have infected the uh, the synovial sites, so the joint cells, with Borrelia at different time points from 24 hours all the way to nine days, okay? And we observed kind of what the pleomorphic form of Borrelia was in these in these cell lines, like do these cell lines, because it's a harsh environment or a different cell line that they're used to, will it create these pleomorphic forms as, as a mechanism to adapt to that type of environment? Or what really happens to them? Are they resolved by these by these cells. And it's interesting that what we have seen is once we infect the cells and we wash off the cells after a certain time point, like like 24 mm -hmm. hours, um, and if we leave the infection to go on for another 48 hours, let's say, and we break up the, the mammalian cell, so the human cell, and we let the Borrelia uh, culture like to grow, we can culture Borrelia from the inside of these cells. And this is wow. really... An, yeah, this is really an indication that the Borrelia can survive in these cells. And uh, Elbeck, okay, different, the two different cell lines have different time points in which the Borrelia, uh, it, you know, it takes for the Borrelia to kind of get accustomed to its environment so that it could actually be cultured out of it. But still, the, the Borrelia will, can survive in both of these cell lines. And, and that's really interesting because, because, well, we know that these cell lines are not professional uh, phagocytes, which like like the macrophages, so it's not used to digesting pathogens, and and obviously uh, resolving it. But you would expect, we thought that these cells would be infected Borrelia. Borrelia, kind of, um, how do I say? Uh, kills the cell, okay, because it has to replicate it. It's it needs nutrients to replicate, you know, and like a typical other bacteria like E. coli or Staphylococcus pyogenes or you know any viral viral infection as well. They take over the you know the cellular machinery for its replication, and they usually tend to kill the cell. And when they kill the cell, then of course they can spread you know the infection. But really, is not killing the cell. So it's it's really interesting that that it hides out in these cells, okay, and maybe to protect itself, it does form different pleomorphic forms, okay. So we right. see more we see more round bodies or coiled up forms in in synovial sites comparatively to the skin cell, and and that's really interesting because the synovial environment is is more acidic. Okay, and it's it's definitely different than the than the skin cells. So so it's really interesting that the Borrelia is really surviving. Truly, surviving that's them. extraordinary. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. This is really an, an amazing bacteria. <laughs> yeah, and are, are other scientists replicating that research as well? 
Yeah, and like it's not it's not just us. Others have yeah. have demonstrated that in different types of cell lines, like the fibrobros, like this this absolutely supporting other people's research. The synovial sites was something something different, and we had to really justify why we were using the cell line. But I, I'm sure other people are are looking into uh, re- replicating this work. And besides, we have replicated, keep on replicating it to make sure that you know the the methods that we're using are you know demonstrating the same results that we are getting. Yeah, so. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Now, in one of your experiments, you were able to stain for cell death markers for apoptosis, necrosis, and dead cells. Can you explain that experiment and the results? Yeah. So, so I think we're talking a lot about the macrophages. So, uh huh. There's different types of cell death, and um, uh, simply put, uh, the organized cell death is apoptosis. Okay, uh, which means that the the cell is undergoing programmed cell death so that it's not creating a whole pile of garbage that's that's thrown into the environment of where the cell is dying from. Okay, so it's controlled, meaning that it that when the cell uh, dies, it will form up these vacuoles. Okay, and and they are surrounded by actually uh, a, a double membrane, and an exon five is a marker that indicates that actually this is re- <laughs> really uh, apoptosis. Okay, the okay. other path, the other pathway um, of of cell death, and there are different pathways, but the ones that we were interested in is necrosis. Okay, uh-huh. and that's like tissue damage. Okay, and tissue damage is not controlled it's not programmed it's when accidentally you damage the cell or or in some cases viruses the viruses will replicate so fast that that the cell will just kind of burst open okay and and all that garbage is is of the cell the inside of the cell is is kind of spewed into the environment okay so it's uncontrolled death but apoptosis is controlled death. And in the macrophages, one of the markers, the annexin 5 compared to cell death markers, which obviously there are DNA stains to show this. There's also um, uh, vacuole markers to show this as well. So we can really differentiate which cells are going under necrosis, a pathway in which cells are going under apoptosis through annexin wow. 5 staining. Yeah. So... So in macrophages, it's controlled death in some death, okay? But it's a lot more, there's more death in monocytes than than professional macrophages. So, and that kind of makes sense because monocytes are naive cells, which means that they don't, they're not mature. We call them the teenagers of the macrophage, okay? <laughs> okay. They don't have, they don't have their final, you know, uh, function yet or, or okay. I, yeah. Uh, but macrophage has its final function and that's to resolve- right resolve the bacteria and to display its display peptides or proteins on its outside surface so it can start communicating to let's say t cells b cells those kind of things and mostly t cells yeah and so the point is is that that um uh these annexin apoptosis pathway labeled is is what we see predominantly in macrophages we tried to use the same kind of technique for the fibrobose cell line in the uh and the uh, sarcoma cell lines or the 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 joint cell lines, but but obviously they weren't causing cell death. So so we had to kind of think, okay, they're surviving. So they're not undergoing apoptosis or necrosis; they're surviving. So so obviously we had to change our thinking and 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 discover that okay, what is what is really happening in these chondrocyte cell lines and the fibrobose cell lines? So. Yeah. 
Wow. That was interesting because our <laughs> hypothesis was wrong. We thought that homocosis <laughs> would happen in, in these two cell lines, but that was not the case, actually. Well, that's an important discovery too. Yeah, it was. Mm -hmm. It really was. Now, what are persistent tissue reservoirs? And is it possible that Borrelia resides in some of those places? I mean, some that, yeah. I don't know, came to mind. Obviously, I saw you speak before about vagus nerve and... I'm just curious about lymphatic and glymphatic tissue as well. Yeah, yeah. So so these persistent reserves, are, these are these niches, okay, of where Borrelia wants to hide out, okay? And there are other people really publishing on on great science that actually indicates that Borrelia has been seen in lymphatics, in the, in the lymph noids even, okay? So mm -hmm. it's it's really, and it, it actually kind of downregulates the maturation of B cells into plasma cells. So they really can affect the overall kind of antibody production pathway that's occurring in the host. And that was a really interesting finding. We also know the niches like the knee, like the knees, the eyes, the brain, uh, you mentioned the vagus nerve. I, I I don't study the vagus nerve, but I have I have read the papers that that have indicated that this could be a niche as well. And it's really trying to trying to get the Borrelia to, or the Borrelia is trying to you know evade the immune system, so it needs to hide out somewhere because there is that question, as you know, of you know what is the mechanism behind post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome or chronic Lyme, right? Mm -hmm. and, and, and yeah. And this leads to the whole thing. Is there a persistent infection or is there persistent antigens or is it an autoimmune occurrence or is it an immune dysfunction? So so there are evidence to suggest that these persistent kind of niches do exist in not only animal studies, non-human primate studies and also human studies. So, so there is these niches there and we just need more research to really show that the persistence is happening happening. So yeah, this is a leading a leading hypothesis of why why we're seeing a lot of patients suffering from post-treatment Lyme disease and chronic Lyme. Mm -hmm. Now, is there anything new that you've learned about Borrelia and the immune system? <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's, it's, so, it's so interesting that, you know, um, one of the emerging areas of research for a lot of pathogens is these extracellular vesicles. As extracellular vesicles are these vesicles that the pathogen will will pump out, okay, that have components of itself inside it, okay, and they can act as a decoy to the immune system, or they can be responsible for even having, you know, even establishing kind of immune, the first immune reaction, okay, in some hosts. And we have demonstrated, us and others have demonstrated that actually Borrelia can produce these extracellular vesicles, okay, and, uh, and inside these vesicles <laughs> have a lot of how do I say <clears throat> antigens and antigens are those proteins, okay, from the Borrelia or entities from the Borrelia that actually the immune, re immune system recognizes as foreign and can elicit an immune response. Okay. So EVs are now being linked to autoimmune diseases, to cognitive diseases. Other EVs are, are, are extracellular vesicles are, are being linked to um, how these pathogens can evade the immune system. So it could be uh, uh, a decoy for the Borrelia to evade the immune system, meaning that once it gets into the blood system or into the lymphatics, it can push out these extracellular vesicles and trick the macrophage, okay, or the adrenic cells, you know, that, hey, I'm, you know, these EVs are the Borrelia, not 
you know, the, the full form of the Borrelia. So it can be really that these are acting as a decoy so that the Borrelia can go to the sites of, of invasion, like joints and, and so forth and disseminate. So we're, we have demonstrated that the uh, certain proteins like the peptidoglycan, glycoproteins, the P39, OSPC and A, as well as DNA, okay? So DNA, Borrelia DNA is in these outer membrane vesicles or these extracellular vesicles. And, <laughs> and yeah, so we are undergoing studies to demonstrate that they could, you know, behave as a decoy for the immune system. That's interesting. Now, what have you been learning about phytochemicals? Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I, I like by default, I'm a scientist. So, so I need to to try to, you know, learn different areas about, you know, tick-borne diseases. And obviously, because of because of patients suffering so much, I wanted to understand what they're going through. And, and is there any treatment? Like, why is treatment failing? And are there other treatments that uh, yeah. they are, you know, provided? And one of the things is phytochemicals or herbal supplements. Now, now, uh, I think it was in 2018, I presented phytochemicals to the German Borreliosis Society. And then I realized, actually, there's a lot of anecdotal, good anecdotal evidence, okay, through mm -hmm. books or through gray papers or for, you know, through blogs uh, that demonstrate that there has been success in, in uh, the use of phytochemicals in Lyme patients. But when you actually look at the peer-reviewed publications, Okay, and the actual types of uh, experiments that they're using and to evaluate, actually, is there really an evidence-based uh, uh, approach to the utility of phytochemicals or herbal supplements and, and Lyme disease? And I was really quite surprised and disappointed because, because there's a lot of in vitro um, studies, so in test tube studies, okay, that you put the phytochemical onto the Borrelia and you look at it to see if it kills it or doesn't kill it or the strength of the killing and so forth. But there is no clinical study, no human clinical study. Right. Yeah. And and I'm thinking, I'm thinking we're doing such a disservice. This is my opinion. We're doing a disservice in not providing this evidence because I know some clinicians have to justify the treatment protocols to their health authorities, their national health authorities. It would be so simple as as a defense and also also supporting, okay, in 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 their protocols if they had an evidence-based article that actually demonstrates you know the effectiveness of these phytochemicals. So this is an area that we need absolutely to do more research. And people I have heard heard and listened to people's comments about why there isn't or the speculation of why there isn't these these clinical studies. And they they you know they say well it's too time consuming, it's too expensive, but actually it's not. It's it's something that could be easily done because they're they're using it on their patients anyway. So you, we get ethical approval, right? We have to, you know, we have controls, you treat your patients, you know, you follow them over a course of a year and a half. I think it should be a year and a half or longer, not 12 months, but a year and a half or longer. And, and, and you, you know, you look at their outcomes, you can look at their outcomes quite easily through, through validated surveys on their symptoms, or, or also their blood, blood chemistries, or also their test results. So it's, so it it is a quite straightforward kind of 
in my mind, experiment to do, okay, study to do, and and I'm encouraging a lot of clinicians to do this, and and I have convinced some clinicians to do this. So hopefully, in the next year or two, we'll start seeing seeing some of the data being published on the use of, of phytochemicals and and uh, their patients. So great, thank you. Now, I I believe you or someone on your team might be attending the upcoming uh, crypto infections conference in Dublin in June 2023. What yes. are crypto infections? <laughs> and can I get rid of them if I buy Bitcoin? <laughs> yeah, I know it's such a great name. <laughs> it, 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 yeah, I think it was more of the politically correct uh, uh-huh. words to to demonstrate chronic yeah. infections. Yeah. So, so I think that's that's the. I think it it was coined by Christian uh, Perron. Okay. And, yeah, and I think it's it's a one way of uh, popularizing you know, this area, because it's not just mm-hmm. Borrelia that's, that causes chronic conditions, but it's also other, other, you know, pathogens. So exactly. I think that was the, the point. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, we'll be watching that because I'm sure there'll be some very interesting presentations that come out of that. Yeah. They have a really good speaker group. So I will be there. Absolutely. Cheerleading everybody. We have some posters from medical students coming out to giving posters and some from other scientists and clinicians. So it will be interesting to see what the emerging research in this area is, is as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Great. I hope there's some wonderful synergy there that just leads to many, many more discoveries and solutions. Yes, me too. Me too. Uh, what can you tell us about tested? Tested. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and what is so, unique about your testing kit? <laughs> yeah. Okay. So tested is a university spinoff company from Uvasco University. And, and uh, we decided to start a company because we realized through European Commission uh, sponsored projects that the testing for Lyme disease is really really poor, meaning the sensitivity and specificity is is poor. And they're only testing one microbe at a time and one antibody at a time, which indicates one disease stage at a time. So really, the whole world is using the two-tier system, basically. And we think that this is failing the patients because within our my PhD students uh, PhD thesis is we we demonstrated that actually these patients are not suffering only from from one microbe like Borrelia they're suffering from other microbes like Bartonella like Babesia and it's in, in, interesting that especially in chronic patients they're suffering for a lot more more pathogens than than just you know somebody being bitten by taking and getting Borrelia and that's the whole point that we surveyed I don't know fifteen thousand patients till now and against mm-hmm. against twenty different microbes and we statistically wanted to provide uh, a test kit that actually was really f- efficient for uh, these patients so our test kit is unique in in the sense it's called Tickplex it tests for fifteen different microbes. Okay, the most statistically significant microbes that we we demonstrated, and it tests for IgG and IgM at the same time, separately, of course, but at the same time. And we have quantification of this immune reaction. So you can see how strong your immune reaction is based on based on the antibody concentration. And we have correlated that to different disease stages, like acute dissemination, late dissemination, and then in chronic stage. And and we have we have this saying that that Borrelia likes likes its friends. So Borrelia right. and friends, yeah. <laughs> so 
So we demonstrated that 85% of Lyme patients in that study, and even, even now in other studies, actually have co-infections. We have shown this in, in, in Canadian patients, European patients, United St American patients, and Australian patients as well. So, so look for our Australian paper coming out soon. Because Okay. Yeah. Does, does it also include testing for mycotoxins? Yeah. So mycotoxins is a is a new product of ours. It's called Toxiplex, Toxitoxins. And it really is the toxins for mold. So we're we're detecting directly these toxins, mycotoxins in the Sarah of the patients. Again, uh, another area of research and another area of concern is, are these patients suffering from other things besides infectious material, like heavy metals or, or mold toxins? Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So so we have developed in a collaboration with San Aviv Medical Institute from, from Mexico, this um, Toxiplex. Yeah. I know and, them. <laughs> yeah, they're really great. It was a, a really great collaboration. And we're testing the most five known and pronounced microtoxins that are found in food and feed, because, you know, how do we get microtoxins? We eat them, okay, through our food and feed. And we also obviously can breathe them in, you know, like the sick, sick building syndrome. So those, those buildings that have mold inside them. And so the patients are suffering and they're inhaling these microtoxins, these spores from the, from the mold. So, so we really, it's, it's one of its kind, we are testing directly five different microtoxins in in the blood of patients. And yeah, in a very simple ELISA format or the, you know, a very basic format. So you can get your test results within four hours instead of two weeks. So oh, wow. it's yeah, yeah, it's really great. We just launched it last fall and and we have Armin's lab using it and we have, of course, Sanovif using it. And of course, we're trying to spread it to other uh, our other customers as well. And then, yeah, for other customers, how can people around the world access uh, your various testing kits? Yeah. So while we wait, okay, until we can get into Canada and we're uh -huh. saying while we wait. So we have a new uh, laboratory open, uh, opening up uh, in the States. So I understand that it's, it could be easy to, to uh, move samples from Canada to the States and they will be opening up at the end of June. So watch my website on that. Okay. You, you will see. Great. But but in the meantime, uh, Armin's lab is accepting because they are now CLIA and CAP approved. Okay, this is the designation, the highest designation in, in okay. the United States. Yeah, so so they can receive samples from Canada and the United States, and they and they have a really good transport system. So you can go to Armin's Lab website and you can just order order the test kit Toxiplex or Tickplex from them, and and they will send you a sampling kit like a blood draw kit, okay, with its tubes, give you instructions on how to send it back, and they will do the testing quite robustly. So. Great. Yeah, thank you. Now, we are getting clo close to the end of the interview, but I do want to ask you, because I know you've worked a lot with patient groups when you're conducting research, and I just yes. thought I would get you to comment about, you know, working with patient groups, because obviously we want to be involved in the research, and we want to participate, and we want to be part of the solution, most importantly. Great. Great. So, yes. I have to say that we cannot do this without the patients. I mean, I, I can't do anything without the patients. So it's very important that we have 
uh, good, good kind of involvement with the patients groups. And, and we look, we, I work closely with a lot of patient groups, as you, you mentioned, but the one that I want to mention right now, because it's called Global Lyme. Okay. And Global Lyme is kind of like-minded individuals from patient groups come in and we discuss different things. Okay. And, and the participation of, of this Lyme Global is only up to the amount of time that you can put in, but basically we have minutes. Okay. So, so if you can attend meetings, you can read the minutes, but we go over such research projects. Okay. uh, To uh, get patients involved. For instance, by the way, I'm putting together a consortium to apply for e European Commission funding, and I've just talked to Dr. Amir Kadir in Quebec. And obviously, if Canada is involved, we need Canadian patients. Right. <laughs> so we will come back to you guys. OK, but I really encourage all patient groups and, uh, you, you know, and members that that if they want to know what's emerging, the research and, and what other patient groups issues are, you have the same issues. It's a global it, mm. global issues. It's not like we're not exceptional in the fact that, you know, the you know governments are or clinicians are turning away, you know, the patients or that chronic Lyme isn't being, you know, is not believed in. There's different terminologies for chronic Lyme in different countries. And the point is they're same legal constitutional issues in a lot of these countries. And in uh, Lyme Global is the one that helps us, uh, uh, you know, air out these issues and maybe learn from each other as well. So it's not just patient groups and patients that are involved. There's like me, like-minded individuals. Uh, Professor Jack Lambert is there from from Dublin, from LRC. And and Cam Lyme, you guys are there too, but we need to see your faces. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Now, one final question. Uh, Is there any other emerging research you're excited about? Uh, there's always, mm-hmm. <laughs> there's, yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, so, and I know you've got some publications coming up, so we won't yeah. spoil anything. No, but I can just, I can just say this. I have encouraged a lot of clinicians to do case, you know, to bring their, their cases into a format that we can actually mine it. Okay. Bring right. their patient's data into a format that we can mine it. So you will be seeing a lot of publications coming out uh, uh, that's using machine learning and AI to really statistically like uh, cluster and support our hypothesis that, you know, chronic Lyme does exist. And these are, you know, these are the characteristics or or there's immune dysfunction and these are the reasons why and, and so forth. So so AI and artificial intelligence and machine learning is you're going to be seeing more and more of that those published. Well, thank you so much for your time. I know you've had a very long day over in Finland. I appreciate uh, you staying and keeping fresh so that you could do an interview with us. And oh, we will certainly stay in touch with all the research you're involved in. Great, great. And my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. My brain is full. It was so fascinating to learn about Borrelia and how they survive. Let's hope that this leads to further discoveries in how to change the environment and eradicate them from our bodies. That's our science fix for today. Stay safe in the outdoors.